We most often think of giving God thanks and glorifying him for his mercy, what he has done for us in saving us, redeeming us, giving us new life, sustaining us, sanctifying us, making us more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. But how often do we think of giving him thanks and glorifying him because he's a God of judgment? That the wicked, the evil, the prideful of heart will get what's coming to them. That as well as being a God of mercy and grace, that God is a God of wrath and judgment. And that the coming of Jesus Christ into this world at Christmas is not only about extending mercy and grace and lifting up the humble, but it's also about scattering into the wind, scattering those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart and bringing down rulers from their thrones. This message is much a part of Christmas, almost as much as anything else that we sing about during the Christmas season. In fact, we can see this in what could be called the very first Advent hymn. It's in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 46. In the first chapter of Luke's gospel, we find the Virgin Mary's song of praise. After being told by the angel Gabriel that she is going to be with child, the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the shadow of the Most High would overshadow her and that she would bear the Son of God, she immediately went to visit her cousin Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea. Elizabeth was miraculously with child in her old age, and when the two pregnant women came together, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy, and Elizabeth pronounced a blessing upon Mary. And this sparked in Mary what is called the Magnificat, which means to magnify, to exalt. It's Mary's song of praise as her soul exalts and magnifies the Lord. And it begins at verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So far in this song of praise that we have read, Mary has given personal reasons as to why her soul exalts the Lord and why her spirit has rejoiced in God her Savior. God has regard for her humble estate. The generations will count her blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me. Notice that's personally for me, she says. Then in verse 50, Mary begins to open it up to all those who fear God. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. But in verse 51, it takes a sharp turn. It's no longer just personal for Mary and personal for those who fear God. Mary turns to what the coming of Christ into the world means for those who don't fear God. What does it mean for those who don't fear God? And another way to put it is, what Christmas truly means for those who don't fear the Lord. And it is sobering. Verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart and has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich 
empty-handed. When Jesus came into this world, from our perspective, he brought an upside-down kingdom. It was totally opposite of what the world promoted and valued. The upside-down kingdom, where you can take the world's value system, everything that it holds uh, of value and what it works for and what it wants, and you can take all of that and turn it on its head, and you have a pretty good approximation of what Jesus was talking about in his kingdom. It's totally counterintuitive. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The way to be first is to be last. The way to be the leader is to be the servant. The way one finds one's life is by losing it. And all these things that frankly don't make sense from our worldly or, or earthly perspective, it seems all upside down. There was that time when the Apostle Paul and his companion Silas were in Thessalonica preaching the gospel. And an angry, violent mob went to the house of Jason to find Paul and Silas. And when they didn't find them at Jason's home, they dragged Jason and some of the other brethren out. And they took them before the city authorities, screaming, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason welcomed them, saying, There is another king, Jesus. Well, if that's what they were charged with, then they were guilty as charged because that's exactly what Jesus came to do, to turn the world upside down. Or as someone has put it, really to turn it right side up. It's really been upside down ever since Adam sinned in the garden. And Jesus came to set it right. He came to bring some mighty reversals. And that's what Mary does here in her song of praise as she is born along by the Holy Spirit, is that she points to the effect and the reversal of things that will occur through the work of the Son that is to be born to her on account of the Messiah God who is coming into the world. Things are going to turn around. There's going to be a cosmic reversal in three different ways. There's going to be a moral reversal. There's going to be a social reversal and a material spiritual reversal. And so Mary points to these three particular full reversals that Jesus brought. On account of his coming into the world as Savior and Lord, as the one who sits on the forever throne of David, this is the way that it works in God's kingdom. And so first of all, Christ brought a moral reversal. A moral reversal. Verse 51 again. He has done mighty deeds with his arms, he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. God's arm represents his strength. It represents his might. It can be used to strongly support and uphold, but it also can be used to scatter, like you would scatter in the wind, that you would bring down and drive out. In God's time, he supports the faithful humble, but he scatters and frustrates the proud. The proud are those who do not fear God. The proud are those who are not hungry for God's righteousness. The proud are those who are not poor in spirit. The proud are literally the ones showing themselves as preeminent. They always think they are the most important person in the room. They are strutting proud, the arrogant, the conceited, and the proud first are proud in their inward thoughts, what they think, and the thoughts of their hearts. 
as they inwardly plot and scheme to perpetuate their arrogance. Please turn to Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, beginning at uh, verse 29. In the fourth chapter of Daniel, of course, we have Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Mary certainly would have had Nebuchadnezzar in mind as uh, she was giving this song of praise to the Lord. And someone has said that Nebuchadnezzar could strut while he's sitting down. He was imperably proud in his innermost thoughts. He was so self-absorbed that even though he'd been warned in a dream interpreted by Daniel about a coming fall, a personal coming fall, if he did not renounce his sins, he still could not control his ego. Verse 29 of Daniel chapter 4. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? This incredibly conceited ruler called down the mighty arm of God upon himself, and Nebuchadnezzar's mind snapped. He descended to all fours, snorting and bowling his way around the court. Like any good beast of the field, he cast off his royal robes. The servants tried to keep putting them back on him. And his only interest was foraging in the vegetation of the palace. His hair grew long, his beard grew so long that it fell over him like eagle's feathers. And his nails, as a result of his grubbing, toughened and grew like thick talons. But look at verse 34. After seven years, the king came to his senses, and he officially recorded in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one could ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? And Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion was in verse is in verse thirty seven. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Or as Mary said in her song of praise, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. Mary is singing about the great moral reversal, that moral reversal that's brought about by the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who scatters those who are proud. And history is full of examples, and the Bible is too. There was prideful Herod Agrippa, who stood in his splendid royal robes, admiring, enjoying the admiring audience, enjoying their blasphemous praise. And Acts chapter 12 says, The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. History is full of those whom the Lord scatters because of their pride. 
Both Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein arrogantly attempted to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon, to rebuild Babylon's glory for their own glory. Yet deep in a bunker, Hitler took a cyanide pill and shot himself with a pistol. Saddam came cowering out of the hole in the ground after his statues had been toppled in the city squares. But most of all, Mary sang of the final reversal and the reckoning that awaits the proud because of Christ's work. The son whom she bore would later categorically say to the prideful religious leaders of the day, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Twice in the New Testament it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God stands against the proud. The word translated opposed there was a military term to stand and range in battle against those that uh, the army is against. God overturns their political power. He overturns their position, their prestige, and he sets things right. So the salvation Jesus brings to the humble will also bring judgment to the proud. The innermost thought or thoughts of the heart describe the hidden place or center of a person's reasoning power. The hidden imaginations of our heart reveal our true selves, which is open before God's all-seeing eyes. And secondly, Mary's saying that God brought a social reversal, a social reversal. Uh, Back in uh, Luke chapter 1, we find it in, in verse 52. Singing and praising the Lord, she says in verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. Once again, for an example of this, we go back to Babylon again, pretty much where we just left off in Daniel chapter 4, because we come to to Daniel chapter 5, and and Belshazzar, uh, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, is, is now king. And during this time, the armies of the Medes and the Persians had devoured the civilized world. And they were encamped outside the gates of Babylon. But instead of doing anything about it, Belshazzar chose to feast. He believed that Babylon's gates were impregnable. And since he had years of supplies stored away, he thumbed his nose at his enemies. And he ordered the sacred gold and silver vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem to be brought to the feast so that they could drink toasts to the gods of the Babylonians. And the feast became a debauched affair. As sacred vessels clattered to the floor, along with wine and spittle and vomit, and roar after roar went up, as idol after idol was praised using the Lord God's sacred vessels. But then the revelry gave way to dead silence. It was punctuated by terror and stricken moans. As a Bodiless hand wrote some solemn words of judgment on the plaster wall. And the effect was dramatic. Daniel chapter 5 verse 6 records, Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. One moment Belshazzar was leading defiant blasphemous cheers. The next he was reduced to a wobbling, fainting coward. No one there could read the handwriting on the wall, so he called for Daniel. 
And Daniel reminded Belshazzar of how his father Nebuchadnezzar came to give glory to the Lord. We see it in verse 22. Drop down to verse 22 of Daniel chapter 5 here. 22nd verse. Yet you, Daniel says, his son Belshazzar have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. And this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, aparsen. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Herodotus and Josephus and other historians fill in the details here. The siege crews of the Medes and the Persians had worked day and night to divert the mighty Euphrates River. And on that very night of the banquet, they succeeded and the armies waded into the city unopposed without even a fight. They captured and killed Belshazzar in the same hall where the writing appeared. And Darius, the new king, retained Daniel in power with an eye to making him the chief administrator of the kingdom. So it's a literal example of Mary's lyrics. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, Belshazzar, and has exalted those who are humble. And that was Daniel. In the same way, the gospel of Jesus Christ lifts up the humble, casts down the proud, effecting that mighty reversal. From this, we understand that life is not always as it appears. Spiritually, down is up and up is down. And that's why the Apostle Peter advised, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time. Then we see in Mary's song in Luke chapter 2, or chapter 1, that Christ brought a material, spiritual reversal. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. The Old Testament history, which Mary has been glancing back here, records the connection between one's material and spiritual state, that there's a direct connection between the material and spiritual state. And for example, the song of Hannah, which Mary has been meditating on and quoting, speaks to this connection. And so we can see this if we turn back to the book of 1 Samuel, clear back in the Old Testament to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, or chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 
and we'll be beginning at, at, at verse 8. And she speaks of this connection here. Hannah declared in 1 Samuel chapter 2, actually beginning at verse 7, the seventh verse here, she says in her song of praise, the Lord makes poor and rich, he brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap, he makes them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth are the Lord's and he sets the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones. And then we see the mighty reversal here. But, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them you will thunder in the heavens. <clears throat> the earth will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his noted, his anointed. Mary's statement, what she said, that the Lord has filled the hungry with, with good things, comes directly from Psalm 107, verse 9. The psalmist said, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. And over and over again, the Old Testament encourages spiritual hunger. Psalm 63, 1 says, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Here is the key point here. Spiritual hunger is the biblical prescription for spiritual health. Spiritual hunger is the biblical prescription for spiritual health. You want to be spiritually healthy? It begins with spiritual hunger. Because those who are full and are not hungry, they imagine themselves in themselves as being self-sufficient and are, in fact, desperately needy. You see, self-sufficiency has a damning effect. The rich young ruler is a good example of this. The, the rich young ruler who came to Christ and he, he missed Christ altogether, not only because he would not get rid of the things that he had to follow Jesus, but simply he was just not hungry enough. He wasn't hungry enough. His desire for the material had dulled a budding spiritual appetite and the rich young ruler, the rich man, was sent away empty. And the resurrected Christ later explained to the Laodicean Christians in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, he said, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. When Mary declares that the Lord has filled the hungry with good things, it's a declaration of the Son of God who offers complete satisfaction. Complete satisfaction for hunger and thirst. You'll remember that Jesus said, For whoever drinks of the water I will give to him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
And then turning from water to food, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And the filling is not just for now, but it's really for all eternity. Can you imagine this? One day as the bride of Christ, the church in eternity, will sit with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus said, And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Spiritual hunger is the biblical prescription for spiritual health. And as Christians, we must realize that our spiritual hunger is a blessed state. It's blessed. That's what Jesus said. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You see, it works like this. We hunger spiritually, and then we are be filled, and we become supremely satisfied. And then this satisfaction then makes for a deeper spiritual hunger, a further filling, and a more blessed satisfaction. And it goes on and on. Hunger, filling, satisfaction. Hunger, filling, satisfaction. And we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Bernard of Clairvaux put it this way. We test thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead and thirst our souls from thee to fill. And then finally, Mary looked to the God of mercy, of eternal mercy. Back to Luke chapter one again, verse 54. She says in verse 54 in her praise, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Here Mary goes back to the covenant promise made to Israel, first stated in Genesis chapter 12, where God told Abraham, and I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Mary sang of its fulfillment, showing that God's covenant is forever a done deal. It's a done deal. And the remarkable thing is that as Christians, we are the spiritual seed of Abraham through faith, meaning that God's covenant mercy extends to all of us in Jesus Christ forever. Forever. God's mercy is a forever and ever accomplished fact for us. And Mary was fully aware that the birth of her child was a fulfillment of the covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants. The blessed seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ, God's one and only Messiah, who would give his perfect sinless life so that all who believed in him would be saved. And the offer and the promise still stand today. For the true descendants of Abraham are those who live their life based upon faith in God and his promises. The God who has helped his people so often in their past distresses and captivities because of his covenant with them was coming to offer them and all of mankind salvation and deliverance. It's an invitation that he still extends to us today. And then the passage concludes with verse 56 by bringing Mary and us back to the harsh reality of day-to-day life. 
Verse 56. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months. That had been about the time that John the Baptist was born. And I believe that after John was born, Mary returned home back to Nazareth, back to the home of her parents. Her pregnancy would be showing when she returned home and she would be the, uh, the object of accusation. The people in Nazareth would shame her in public if they saw her. They would shun her. They would run away. But Mary had the attitude of the Lord. Let the people say what they would. She was willing to bear the disgrace in order to be an instrument of God's grace. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we think of this and uh, the message today, Father, and the, the technical difficulties we had this morning, Father, I thank you that you took care of those. And Lord, the people were able and willing to, to listen this morning. We can come together in this way, Father. And I pray that as we come in fully into the Christmas season now, Father, that we as disciples and believers of Jesus Christ, Lord, living in this upside-down world, Father, that we might be instruments of your grace somehow this season, Father, and how you are turning things right side up. May we fully participate in the great reversals that you have for each one of us in Jesus Christ. And we do pray this in his name. Amen.